Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, and welcome to the Addicts Anonymous podcast. I'm your host, Jim R., and today is episode eight. And today we're going to be interviewing Person You're Responsible. Hi, hi, P.I., how are you? I'm great, thank you, Jim. It's just lovely to be here, and it's lovely to be talking about recovery. And if I uh, could ask, I think you're from the U.K., correct? I am, I am, which is why the uh, yeah the accent's a little bit different to what you're used to, but hopefully you'll understand me. Absolutely. Um, I always get made fun of by my British friends that you guys are speaking proper English, so I'm, i got to make sure Absolutely. I'm proper with you. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I spent six months in America last year, so I got sort of quite familiar with the different accents uh, over there, and they're about as broad and as different as ours are over here, even though you're a much bigger country. Yes, we do have a wide range of accents and different, you know, voices from around the country. So let's get into it. Tell me a little bit about your childhood, if there was anything that led to your addiction or if there was stress on, you know, between you and your family or maybe at school. Tell me a little bit about your childhood. Okay, uh, that's a great first question because I genuinely don't know why I ended up alcoholic, but, you know, I do know that a lot of it is based in trauma. I certainly didn't have an easy childhood. Uh, There was a lot of tension in the home. Uh, It could be described as an alcoholic home. At least one parent was alcohol dependent. Um, But I just didn't recognize that until I got into recovery because I I married somebody who was a heavy drinker as well. I was a heavy drinker. So it it had been a theme throughout my life, you know, drinking equals fun. And so, you know, I kind of do believe that there is probably a genetic disposition. I think certainly, you know, within, you know, my own family, Um, definitely, uh, you know, it's gone on before. And I'm very estranged from the wider family, so I don't really know, like, my family tree or anything. But when I was quite young, I think, you know, I moved a lot as a child. I I bounced from one country to another. And I think that can be very traumatizing because every single time we moved, I lost my pets, I lost my friends, I lost my bedroom, I lost my toys. uh, And we just bounced and bounced and bounced every few years. And I think that left me with that sense of being isolated. And I felt very othered quite early on. You know, I was sort of like this white kid, Christian a denomination in in a muslim country or in a black country and and we i mean we went to some really fascinating countries but i do think i felt very different uh, quite early on and i think that that probably i've always said now that i'm in recovery that if i hadn't got that alcoholic reaction to drinking you know that I, one is never enough and nor is a thousand if i didn't have that alcoholic sort of behavior that reaction then i'd just be quite a dysfunctional human being i just have very warped thinking and uh, and recovery has really shown that to me um so yeah so i think the roots of it can be found in, in childhood you know the sort of the low self-esteem and, and a lot of internally sort of internalized self-loathing 
uh, certainly started from a very young age. Was I, was, there... I wasn't a very popular child, and I certainly wasn't a very loved okay. child. That's okay. what I was going to ask, if there was a reason for the self-loathing, if you ever identified what, what, what it was. Because I know sometimes it's just part of being a young child, but sometimes people kind of put a pin on what actually happened to cause it. Yeah, no, we were very dysfunctional. It's one of the saddest things, actually, that that I've had to sort of really look at in recovery was I was the second child and, and my older sibling was very much adored by my mother and very much loathed by my father. So that was the sort of dynamic I was born into. And as a result of that, I remember one, I was very young and my mother sitting down and explaining to me, you know, that she, because my father hated my brother so much, she had to compensate for that. And that's why she loved him more than me. And that would have been fine. You know, we both then have a parent each. I mean, it's not fine. That's screwed up. But it would have been fine in theory. But I never saw my father from one day to the next. So I was just like this forgotten child. And, uh, and I, I just felt like I could never do very much right. You know, I was always in trouble for something. And, and that theme carried on for many, many years. To relate to that, that could happen to anyone. And it happened to me as well as far as not getting along with my parents and whatnot. And mm. any type of thing where you don't feel welcome is, I think, very traumatic for a child. And especially since um. You tell me if I'm wrong, not trying to be a therapist, but it sounds like you had a real lack of stability in your life that led to Absolutely, absolutely. And, and that's, you know, again, coming into it, it was my normal. So I didn't realize just how impactful um, this, this sort of very unstable lifestyle had been until I started working the program of AA. And, um, but just, you know, to give you a brief outline, you know, by the time I left school at 18, I had been to 10 different schools. Uh, I had lived in, I don't know how many people's houses because I, you know, periods of time I was looked after by other families. I went to boarding school aged eight. Now, if you want to make a child feel abandoned, shove them in a cold, hideous, stately home. Um, you know, wow. There's this belief wow. that, you know, you're going to get this amazing education, but it wasn't that great and it was pretty lonely, really. Yeah, so it sounds like you yeah, had a so rough childhood. Um, yeah, it, it was very erratic. So it, mm -hmm. it does sound like that you had, like you said, a very erratic childhood. So yeah. when was the first time you ever used drugs, alcohol, or any kind of compulsive behavior that might have been seen as addictive? When was the first time that you can remember? Well, I can remember my first drink because I was about seven. And, uh, and and my parents or my mother believed that if you give children alcohol, it demystifies it and they won't grow up to be alcoholic. So... As a family philosophy, that's not one I can endorse from first-hand experience. Um, but to be fair, in my teenage years, I wasn't really into drinking. It, it didn't. I, I liked smoking, but I didn't like you know normal cigarettes because I was in boarding school. So getting drugs was kind of really hard. Um, and I really had no interest in, in alcohol or drugs throughout my teenage years. So in, in that respect, I, it, she kind of had demystified it for me because I didn't like it. But we had to sort of drink to be civilized. Um, and so I only really came into sort of drugs much later. Um, I probably, I'm trying, I can't even remember when I first smoked a spliff, to be honest. And I was always too scared of hard drugs. So 
you know, right up until just before I stopped drinking, I, I used to say to people, you know, I, I tried a cigarette and I smoke and I tried a drink and I drink. I daren't try, you know, cocaine or anything like this or ecstasy. So that whole era of ecstasy in the 1990s, I kind of swerved it. And I went out and spent a fortune getting drunk whilst everybody else was getting off their heads on E for, you know, a fraction of the price. Um, so drugs, you know, I didn't think I had a problem with drugs until I, again, I sat down and, and did a step one and and I saw that marijuana had been quite big in my 20s. But then once my career took off and I and I had to be regularly drug tested at work, it was no big deal to give it up. Um, so, yeah, so alcohol really started to become... Looking back, it was in my early 20s when I suddenly discovered that alcohol on a Friday night, I could close my front door and it just gave me this amazing tonic to relax and unwind and feel comfortable in my own skin. And very quickly, it became apparent that one bottle wasn't quite enough. You know, I wasn't feeling like I'd had enough. And so I started very quickly Friday and then Saturday and I was still only on one bottle. And, uh, and it, I was laughing with somebody recently because it was only when I was working with a load of chefs and, and a chef had said, oh, if you put wine into like a tomato-based sauce, it gives it a real zing. And that was the green light to move from one bottle to two bottles of wine on a Saturday night because I needed one for the pot, you know, a little bit of one, a, a, just a cupful for the pot. And then I had the extra that I needed to top up from the one bottle that wasn't quite enough. So, of course, for that first sort of year I found booze, I drank, uh, you know, I drank wine, very low alcohol content wine, but I ate an awful lot of, like, spaghetti bolognese and tomato ragu. How, and how old sort of at this point? To give myself that excuse to, to <laughs> buy an extra bottle of wine. And so that's really when I think I had the first symptoms of it being an anaesthetic and it being a mood changer and it not quite being enough. And then... You know, I sort of went to university and I did the binge drinking and all of that sort of thing. So it was very hidden because, again, university culture in the UK, there is a lot of drinking. Freshers Week is a big introduction to booze and there's a lot of pub crawls and that sort of thing. So it was only when I sort of got to my mid-20s and I met the man that I went on to marry and he was 10 years older than me and he was a big drinker. So, again, it masked my drinking, but it gave me that permission to drink during the week because he drank during the week. And if he did it, it was okay. Um so it was it like I say, all of this has been very sort of revealed to me when I've sat down and gone through the steps because I honestly believe my drinking was quite normal for many, many years. And I, I can now say it wasn't, but because I lived with drinkers, you know, I'd grown up with drinkers, I hang out with other drinkers, it was so masked. And then it was only when my marriage collapsed and I, you know, initially for about two weeks I was like, look, I'd better not drink on this because I don't think I'll stop. And about two weeks later, I picked up, you know, I went to the shops, bought two bottles of wine and I got absolutely smashed. And for the next year, I drank pretty much every night. I was heartbroken and hurting and I just drank and drank and drank. I never drank in the mornings. I never drank in the afternoons. I never drank before six o'clock because that would make you an alcoholic, you know. Um, and it was only when I, I don't know if you have in America, we have twice a year, we have dry January and stoptober. So there's like months long campaign to to make us not drink for at least <laughs> once a year and uh, so i thought you know i'll do that dry january thing um uh, but i thought i was being really clever with this because i don't know about you know anyone else but january has 31 days in it whereas february has 28 and that's so much more attainable so i moved dry january to dry february 
And the first attempt I did, I think I managed 10 days. And I, I was going through a divorce at the time. So I was like, well, if you were getting divorced too, you'd drink like I drink. So, you know, I just carried on drinking. And then the second year, I managed four days. And that's when it really hit me that I could stop drinking, but I was just hideous. I hated every second of it. I wanted to be drinking all of the time. And if I didn't have to go to work, you know, I would have been drinking all the time, quite frankly. And I just realised or had that inkling that that perhaps I was in more trouble than I realised, you know. So in terms of a lot of alcohol stories I've heard, and believe you me, I've heard a lot, it was, I was just very lucky that I got that, that gift of desperation when I was still quite early on in, in that recovery, sorry, in that drinking career that we, we go down in that I hadn't graduated to morning drinking and I hadn't graduated to around-the-clock drinking. And I was still able to, by sheer, you know, force of effort, go a few days without drinking. But I always went back to it. So going back real quick, you said your first drink was from your parents at the age of seven. Do you remember Mm -hmm. how it made you feel? I didn't like it. I genuinely didn't like it. I genuinely was repulsed by it. Um, and, and like I say, I, I genuinely didn't like much of the booze I came into contact with. So, you know, I know a lot of alcoholics say, you know, their first sip they had, it was like this elixir of life and, and they, and it totally made them feel okay. It didn't have that impact on me whatsoever. That came, you know, when I was in my early twenties, when I suddenly realized, oh, blimey, this is why my mother drinks so much. It's bloody beautiful. And it's almost like something changed in my early twenties rather than that very, very first drink. So all I can remember about those early drinks was I really didn't like drinking. I couldn't understand why adults did it. So in your later years, did you have drinking buddies or was this really you just going home by yourself? Uh, well, I married a heavy drinker, uh, so he was my number one drinking buddy, and he was my excuse to drink all the time. You know, he no, he he wanted to drink a lot more than I wanted to drink, but I never, you know, I was just like, this brilliant. It gave me the green light because it was like, well, my drinking's bad, his drinking's worse. So it, it was, yeah, he was my number one drinking buddy, and, and he... You know, he came from a family that were big drinkers, so it was all all enmeshed in that. Uh, and then, like I say, I did. I'd always find uh, one or two good drinking buddies, you know. And I self-selected people on that basis. It was, you know, I didn't care less how interesting you were. It was how much did you drink? That's that was the mark of a decent person to me. Um, but my preferred drinking, once I think, once it started to take a hold, and I realised I became quite a twat when I drank. <laughs> it, it then started, you know, I didn't. I was just rude and obnoxious, and, and I, you know, I thought it was really funny, but actually, it was just really offensive looking yeah. back. And so it was more that I I could relax and unwind on my own. I didn't have to count my drinks. I didn't have to be conscious of how much I was drinking when I was on my own. So that started to push me to to being home alone drinking but also my career had taken off and I and I went to some quite um I don't know if you can say dangerous countries but you know some countries where you had to be particularly careful as a woman and so that pushed my drinking inside particularly I mean one country I was in it was completely a dry country obviously you could obtain, obtain alcohol illegally uh and it cost you a fortune so that all that kind of you know got me past those sort of markers of of i'm going down a dangerous path here um 
and not realizing it and just thinking, well, you know, there's no option. I have to. It's a dry country. You can't drink in bars here, you know. Um, but I, I actually loved drinking on my own because I, it's that phrase that they say, you know, if if I'm controlling my drinking, I'm not enjoying it. And if I'm enjoying my drinking, I'm not controlling it. And so drinking at home was a way that I could enjoy it and not have to worry about the consequences until at least the next day anyway. When you were going to try to start eventually getting clean or heading into recovery, was there anything that clicked in you that made you realize that like you said you you is there anything that made you take step one where you had to say my life has become unmanageable and part of my language i can't handle my shit anymore at what point did that happen for you i was i was absolutely heartbroken my marriage disintegrated quite quickly and i'd I'd moved to scotland and um and i was working up in scotland and and i was very alone you know i knew nobody there and i didn't make any effort to meet people because by now you know when i when i could i wanted to drink um, but I just knew that, you know, my heartbreak wasn't going anywhere. I was struggling with horrific hangovers, you know, because of the binge drinking. And I just wanted a break from the stuff. I just wanted literally a month of no drinking. I could then get my head together and then I would fix everything. That was my plan, you know. And then I think basically where I started to believe in there's no such thing as a coincidence, you know, that started to happen. Because I had this overwhelming desire one night to read a book uh, by an author called Marion Keys. And she's not ordinarily an author I would read. I'm not into chick lit, which is what her, you know, she writes about. And she'd written a book called Rachel's Holiday. And it's about a woman in her 20s who goes to rehab for cocaine addiction. And some level I must have been looking to identify. I didn't know it at the time, but I had this yearning to read this book all of a sudden. And thank God I did, because at the end of it, there was a whole chapter on Alcoholics Anonymous. And by now it's like 11 o'clock at night. And so I was like, well, I'm going to ring it and they can tell me I'm, I'm fine, you know, for, you know, that I haven't got a problem with alcohol. And I, ne- I never expected anyone to answer the phone and somebody did. And I said, look, you know, I'm not an alcoholic, but <laughs> I started to tell her the story of my life and how tragic it was and how miserable I was and how I could stop, but I couldn't stay stopped. And I tried January and February and it still hadn't worked. And, and she said, look, you know, it sounds so hauntingly familiar. What I suggest you do is go to a meeting of AA. And uh, and I was like, oh, I don't think I'm quite that bad. You know, lots of backpedaling at this point. I just wanted her to tell me I wasn't an alcoholic looking back. And I said, OK, I will. I'll go on Sunday. And this was the Thursday. And uh, and and. So what I'd planned in my head was a big party of one. Farewell, alcohol. You know how it goes, where you're sat on the floor watching the same YouTube video, singing along to some sad song on your own. It's really great fun, honestly. And, <laughs> and, and for some reason, from that phone call and the Sunday, I didn't drink. And, uh, and, and I knew I had to be somewhere Saturday morning, so I couldn't drink on the Friday night. And, uh, and yet, so I'd, I'd planned this big party on the, on the Saturday night, and something in my head said, "Don't drink tonight because you won't go to that meeting tomorrow." And and that's where it all got a bit like that had never happened to me. 
And I'd love to say that I went to the meeting on the Sunday and hallelujah, I, I got it and I understood everything. But as I said, I was an English woman in Scotland and with respect to any Scottish listeners, I really struggled to understand the Scottish accent. <laughs> and that was very true at my first meeting in Edinburgh. It was like all these people are like, I can pick out the odd word, but I really don't have a clue what you're talking about. And um, and it was all men as well. There was there was I think there was one other woman, but there was it was generally all men, and they all sounded like they wanted to kill me. And, and the you know the rivalry between the Scots and the English is is pretty intense. And uh, and they were lovely. They were great guys, but I couldn't understand a word of what they said. And this great big fat man said, "It's the first drink that does the damage, lassie." And I looked at him and I thought, "No, it's about the eighth or ninth for me. That's when I fall down the stairs." And, uh, and somebody else had said, get 30 meetings in 30 days. And I was like, no, I really don't want to do that. That's really excessive. Um, and, and yet they were all lovely. And, and all that happened really was I went to that meeting. I cried like an absolute baby. I cried and cried and cried. I couldn't understand what I was doing there. I was terrified and I felt really like a fish out of water. Uh, but I do know as I went home that night, and I was like, blimey, I haven't drunk today. You know, this is clocked up another day. And then I, the next day, I was like, okay, you know, oh, you know, which day should I go next? And, the, and I realised that actually, if I went to a meeting that night, I wouldn't have to climb the walls on my own. And so I went to another meeting, and again, they were saying go to thirty meetings in thirty days. And it sounded in the Scottish accent, it just sounds like an order. It doesn't sound like a suggestion. It sounds like something to do, or they're going to kill you. You know. Yeah. And I remember thinking. But I just wanted, you know, I was undecided whether to go on a Wednesday or a Thursday and I was going to check the TV schedule, see which night was worse, you know, and then I was going to go on that night. And all that happened was I just kept making that decision on a daily basis just to go to a meeting at night. So even though they kept telling me what to do and telling me the solution, I was still very like, I'm not doing it your way. I'm going to do it my way. But it just so happened I ended up doing the 30 meetings in 30 days. You want to hear something and interesting? So if you want to hear something real quick about what you just said, it's perfect because I forget who it was. I love AA, so I've done all the, even though I'm, my group is a spinoff or whatever you want to call it, I still respect them. And one thing that happened was instead of Bill W. saying you should to or you have to in his book, if you notice, it says you ought to because somebody said addicts don't like to be told what to do. So Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I mean, I can still walk past a no smoking sign and immediately want to light up a cigarette. And I don't smoke anymore. You know, I am. It, <laughs> so there's no point telling me I have to do something. So it's if you look in the ridiculous. big book, next time if you ever reread it, it says you ought to instead of you Absolutely. should or you have to. Absolutely. And I ended up doing that anyway. You know, and, and it wouldn't have mattered whether they'd said ought to or have to. It, you know, it didn't matter what they said. I ended up doing it and it ended up doing it got enough of AA into my head. And, and I, you know, other fellowships, the same applies. It, alcohol was my number one drug of choice uh, or drug of no choice to be more accurate. But um yeah, it, it was, it, looking back, that was the thing that got enough AA in my head so that when I finally relapsed after 72 days, um, that it was it was AA that ruined my drinking, you know, it destroyed my drinking. I could no longer have a guilt-free drink because everything that I heard in those rooms kept coming back to haunt me. And um, 
And so, yeah, so, the, you know, I now know, looking back, that the more meetings a person can get to, the more likely that stinking thinking, that really corrupt, you know, need for, for whatever your drug is, um, is going to be intercepted. Uh, and so I, you know, I just, I was very lucky that something got through uh, or enough got through before I had a relapse, you know. It didn't stop me having a relapse because I wasn't truly listening. I didn't truly want to be there, to be honest. I just wanted a break for the stuff. And... And that was the thing, is when I got to 30 days, and I was all thrilled because I was like, I only wanted to do 28 days, and now I've actually done 30. And I picked up the one-month chip that you get, and, uh, and then somebody yelled out, and now you do 60 and 60. And it was like, oh, you're kidding. you know. And I needed, and because they yelled that out, I was like, well, I might as well do 60 and 60 now because I'm feeling the benefits of not drinking. Um, but what I hadn't realized was, yeah, I wasn't drinking, but I wasn't getting well. You know, I was still absolutely miserable, um, still in a really bad way emotionally. Um, and so, yeah, so, you know, I carried on picking up chips. I had my relapse. It was a one-day special. I told nobody and still carried on picking up the chips as if it hadn't happened. So I hadn't even got the part one of the honesty, you know, the first step. I knew I was powerless over alcohol. I'd got my head around that bit. My life was unmanageable. I still blamed everyone else for that. I never realized the connection between my drinking and my thinking and the fact that my life was not the way I wanted it to be. So one question I also had was, did this ever, how did this affect your personal life with, you know, friends, family, and also your job? Did this ever, were you able to just make it through the day without any effects on your job? Or did you see performance slowing down or anything like that oh yeah i i think you know the thing that i looking back and again i was in such an hour but looking back you know i was so erratic i could never you never knew who you were going to get i wasn't going to be a happy person was i going to be a grumpy person and it all depended on whether i'd had a drink the night before uh so certainly it definitely made me really impatient around people and you know so many i ended up sort of quite senior in a company and i was always thinking like why are these people always bringing me problems you know i can't handle the stress and now they're making me drink you know um and i could never see that actually it was the alcohol that made me intolerant and unable to face the problems so it had a huge impact on my thinking and my ability to actually do my job um you know i was never you know because i was quite senior i didn't and, and the nature of the job was i didn't have to be there at like eight o'clock and have a boss to clock in with or anything like that so there are days when i was you know not very early not very on time but nobody questioned it because it was the nature of my job but it had a huge impact and and you know and it was very rough i think with people very rude to people at times so certainly had you know changed my personality because i'm a fairly you know i'm a upbeat quite happy person for the most part these days but Certainly not in the in the latter end of my, my drinking days. Um, and in terms of friends, like I said, when I moved to Scotland, I made no effort to attain a social life because I just, it would interfere with my drinking. And that's, you know, it was like I say, looking back, I can see that alcohol made so many decisions for me. It just, it isolates you and you don't even know it's doing it um, because people would invite me to do things. And, I, and if it was on a Friday and a Saturday, it was like, uh, yeah, no, I'll let you know. And in my head, I'd be thinking, yeah, no, I'm not giving up a night's drinking to spend time with you. You know? And now, of course, I'm really social and I, I'm out all the time and it's brilliant. And I'm, I'm for years, I, I, you know, I couldn't understand why I had no friends <laughs> towards the end, but I made no effort to make any. So 
what I have found in the way I describe addiction is it's a very lonely place to be. Because at the end, even if you're with other people, you just feel alone because you know that you're not like them. That's what I find a lot of addicts, when I mention that, I get a lot of people who agree with that. Absolutely. I always felt slightly different anyway. So I think it really builds on that. And uh, But I completely agree. It's a disease that wants you on your own and it will do everything it takes to get you on your own. Um, and that's when you're really vulnerable. And it's like I say, it's a disease that says it's your best friend. Alcohol presented as my best friend. And it was this, I, I would have given anything away, but not alcohol. Away. So you finally get into some meetings, you do the 30 and 30, you relapse after 72 days. When did uh -huh. you finally get back on the wagon where you can say you were sober for quite a bit of time? Because I know we want to get into your, uh, your big journey that you took in the States. So at what point yeah. were you sober enough to actually do these type of things? So, well, my sobriety date is now June the 4th, uh, 2016. Okay. That's my birthday, cool. and I'm very, I'm very uh, precious about that birthday. Congratulations. But the date I arrived in, in um, Alcoholics Anonymous was March the 17th, 2016. And, uh, and that was also, incidentally, my divorce date. And so um, it was quite an important day. And Irish people say, and it's St. Patrick's Day. But <laughs> I'm not Irish, so that doesn't really mean so much to me. And ironically, in 2020, March the 17th, I stood at the Mexican border and walked towards Canada. You know, and that's the sort of stuff, you know, that's those little tiny seemingly coincidences that, that have totally changed. Um, so like I say, my membership date and my actual sobriety date are different, but I'm still very sentimental about my membership date. Um but I had my relapse, and like I say, it was a one-night special. I'd had some really bad news, or what I could perceive to be really bad news. And in Scotland, you can't buy alcohol after 10 o'clock at night. It's a restriction that, that doesn't apply in England. And, and, I mean, I'm sure you can if you know people, but the only people I knew were in AA, and they weren't going to tell me where to buy booze, and I wasn't going to ring them because I didn't get my head around that bit. And... Um, and so, you know, I sat there with this bad news for a couple of hours and, uh, and I was like waiting till 10 o'clock at night thinking, OK, once I've got to 10, I'll be safe because all the shops will be closed or, you know, even the 24-hour supermarkets, they cordon off the alcohol. So I won't be able to get alcohol at all. I'll be absolutely safe. And at one minute past 10, I jumped in my car and I drove to England, which was about a four hours drive to go and buy booze. And that's the night I realized that what I was doing was totally insane. And I, and I mean, I was backwards and forwards in my thinking that whole night. I was back and forth across the border the whole night thinking, should I buy booze? Should I not buy booze? And, um, and I'd stopped smoking at that point. And at, so about three o'clock in the morning, I bought a packet of cigarettes. And I thought, this, this is an interim measure. This, this, this is fine. I can smoke instead. I lit up the first cigarette. I was immediately sick. And then because I'm a proper addict, I was like, well, you just have to push through, don't you? And uh, so I lit up another cigarette and then I smoked a whole load of cigarettes. And then, uh, and the funny thing is I wouldn't drive the car because I was terrified of crashing it. So I was actually just like outside my house smoking these cigarettes. And then at six o'clock in the morning, I walked across the road and bought booze. And I didn't drink it before six that night because I knew if I drank before six, I'd be admitting I'm an alcoholic. And, um, and I didn't want to do that. I really didn't want to do that. You know, I was okay saying I'm an alcoholic just to not offend people in the rooms, but I didn't actually want to admit it. And, uh, and I drank, I opened the first bottle, I drank the first glass of wine. It did absolutely nothing. It was like drinking cat's piss. 
And then again, you've got to push through these things. So I drank the second glass of wine, it did nothing. And I remember looking at this bottle and thinking, I actually don't want to drink this anymore. And that was when that obsession was removed and that moment. And I tipped the rest away. And like I say, I told no one because I hadn't quite got the, the honesty part. And then the next night I went to a meeting, I had the worst possible hangover on two flipping glasses of wine as well. I was really outraged about that. And, uh, and I heard the share that changed my life. And it was someone who literally told my story. They didn't drink around the clock. They didn't drink every day. They didn't drink before six o'clock. But when they drank, they were really, really, truly unable to stop. And it was like, oh, my God, if you're an alcoholic, then I'm an alcoholic. And it was like somebody had cleared out my ears. It was like I finally tuned into the accent. I finally got what they were all talking about, which was just because I haven't gone to the gates of death doesn't mean I'm not an alcoholic. It just means I've got further to go and I can get off and stay off now, you know. And and it was just the light switch went on. And I'd love to say from that day to the next, it was easy. It wasn't easy because I still didn't understand the recovery is nothing to do with the drinking. It's all to do with how I engage with the world or not. And it's it's recovery. It's, it's about learning emotional sobriety more than anything else. And you're not going to learn or I'm not going to learn to how to be a human being and how to be a happy, contented, well-adjusted human being whilst I'm throwing alcohol down my throat. Nobody is. Um, and, but that was the, really the first day that I started to realise that alcohol was out to kill me. And if I didn't start taking this seriously, then it was probably going to succeed and life was only going to get worse and worse and worse. And, and like I say, something just clicked. And, and, you know, the advice I was given in the first year was, you know, get a sponsor, work through the steps, don't make any big changes in your life. And I was like, but have you seen step three? That's quite a big change. And, <laughs> and of course, I didn't listen to any of it. So I then got a new job, moved down to England. And uh, But the one thing I took with me was just go to a shed load of meetings. Just Just keep going to meetings because you're going to hear stuff you need to hear in those meetings. And that's what I did. So I moved down to England and I went to a meeting every day. And then I started my new job about a month later. And I couldn't get to meetings. They were a real a job all about presenteeism. And, and they, you know, the boss was all about, you you know, we're like a family here. And and therefore you can't leave work, and you know, and when you want to, because that's like saying we're not a family and you're not a proper family member. And, and it was all just a load of tosh, you know. Looking back, he's got an alcohol problem, but I, you know, I was a bit too green at the time to recognise it. So it was a big drinking culture. There was a lot of drinking going on. I was like a fish out of water again. I was really unhappy. Uh, and so it really interfered with me. And I didn't tell anybody I was a recovering alcoholic. You know, my, the advice I was given, it's nobody's business but yours. You know, focus on yourself. You're not, you don't have to be a, a walking advert for AA. And so I just told them, you know, I was a teetotaler and I used to drink and I didn't now. So they all thought it was a bit weird anyway. And... Um, and after seven months of being, you know, and it, there was a massive sort of pressure to drink. You know, there was this thing on Fridays where um, the company would buy all this booze for their employees and, and we'd have this big party until, you know, early evening. And I'd say, you know, can you just buy some, you know, fruit juice for me? And they were like, no, we don't have the budget for fruit juice. We, it's alcohol or nothing, you know. And it was just like, wow, um, yeah, <laughs> what am I doing here? Um and, and once I'd gone to a meeting and they said, look, you know, uh, the company's really struggling. We're going to have to work even harder than we already work. So from now on, you're going to work at weekends, whether you like it or not. And I thought, actually, 
I only go to one meeting a week and you're taking that away from me. I'm not doing that. And so I chose AA and I, and I quit the job. And then I, then I really started to take it. You know, I realized I was on my knees emotionally. I was in such a bad way. So then I got the sponsor and then I started working the steps and learning the steps. And, you know, and then I learned how to put my recovery first so that I would never feel ever again that I have to sit in a situation that's that detrimental to my well-being, that somehow recovery is a much better option. Um, and, and, yeah, so it was a tough life lesson. But that's, I think, quitting that job was when I really took my step three because it was like, you know, that's a big thing to do to put your recovery first and, and, and so on. And, and it's it's proved the right decision because, as I say, you know, last year I, I ended up, you know, there was this pandemic about to kick off. And, and again, just through pure sort of luck, I happened to find myself at the, the Mexican border just before they closed the, the, you know, all the flights down. And I was able to walk across America uh, on my own um, and, and achieve, you know, something really, really tough. And it was all down to the fact that none of that would have happened had I not joined AA. You know, I, I have an amazing life. I've, I've done, you know, in the last 18 months, I've written a book. I've walked across America. Uh, I've moved house. Uh, I live in a lovely little cozy cottage. Um, and, and, and life just gets sort of better and better. None of it would happen if I was still drinking. I mean, I, I imagine I'd be homeless by now. So tell me a little bit more about your walk across America. What made you think of that? And I guess it was for a cause. It was for just to bring awareness to addiction and stuff. I wish I wish it was that um, laudable. It, it really wasn't. It was I, one of the things that AA has changed about how I view the world is I no longer believe in coincidences. Um, you know, and you do have to. You know, if you're going to take the steps, you have to explore. You don't have to, but you know, part of the steps that you start to explore. You know, faith and religion and spirituality and. And I found it really difficult to embrace any kind of local religion. It's not that I didn't try, but it just never connected for me. But what it, what I really bought into was the idea of, and it says in the big book, you know, that things are the way they are supposed to be. Uh, I, the, the issue is whether I like it or accept it. And so once I realized there's no such thing as a coincidence, once I banished the, you know, and that's a binary thought, you either believe in coincidences or you don't. You can't believe a little bit, you know, you can no longer... You can't believe a little bit anymore that you can be a little bit pregnant. It's either you do or you don't. So once I um, once I sort of accepted there was a power greater than myself, then then I realized that when things are you know, certain things just sort of happen in an order and they you're either awake to, to, to be there and be part of it or you're not. So the whole trip to America was more of a se- a series of happenstances that a friend of mine had watched the film Wild and she was raving on about it. And I was like, this is not something I'm remotely interested in. And she kept going on and on about it. And in the end, I just said to her, fine, I'll watch it if you come to dinner. And then I'm going to force you to watch it again if you think it's so great. So I read it and then she watched it and then she said, no, go and read the book. So I went and read the book and something had caught my imagination because then I read six more books about the Pacific Crest trial. And uh, I was like, there's no way I could do anything like that. You know, I'm fat, I'm unfit, I'm still smoking. I, you know, I like my chocolate, I like my solid brick house. I like my internet, I like my meetings. And uh, and then I was in the bath one day, uh, a few days later, and, I, you know, I sit in the bath and I watch, um, I often listen to like an AA podcast, you know, similar to this. And 
So I was sort of lounging around listening to that, uh, looking for one to listen to, and you've got the sidebar, you know, to choose from it, and it was like how to apply for a PCT licence, and it was just that random. And I clicked on it and found out you needed a permit. I didn't even know you needed a permit. I'd never discovered this. And that permit day was that particular day. What's PCT? The PCT is the Pacific Crest Trail. So it's the the longest um, continuous hiking trail in the world. And it connects Mexico to Canada through uh, California, Oregon, and Washington. Uh, So, yeah, so it was like this famous trail that I'd never heard of a week before, you know, like you, no idea what it was. Um, But the, the, the day to apply for the permit was that day. And, and that was the only opportunity you had, you know, that year to apply. And uh, and it's obviously heavily subscribed. So I rushed upstairs and there's all these courses you've got to complete to, to apply for the permit. So I had to learn about leave no trace principles. I had to learn about how to manage fires and all sorts of things that I knew nothing about. I'm not a hiker. I don't go outdoors walking. And um, and I just applied and I got this permit, like I say, with this. And my flight date was March the 17th. And... And uh, and it was just like, wow, I guess I'm going and walking the PCT then. And, it, you know, it was just laughable because I was not someone that was really equipped to go and do this. I'd never, I didn't sleep in tents. I, I don't enjoy walking long distances. I was terrified of everything, absolutely everything, bears, rattlesnakes, you name it. I was I was bricking myself over it. Um, but that... That was just, like I say, that, that sense of it felt like the right thing to do. It felt like just just go with the flow here and see where it takes you. Um, and you may or may not make it, but you know what? You, you're going to have a story to tell whatever happens. And and so that's what I did. I went to, you know, I flew into America and I ended up changing my flight because, you know, Europe got banned from going to America and it was like, right, okay, we're going to be banned soon, you know. So I, I changed my flight and flew in quite quickly once I realised there was a pandemic on the way. And I honestly believe the pandemic was going to be over in a few months. You know, I just saw it as a load of hype. And uh, and anyway, and then the borders got closed down. I was like, well, I'm here now, and <laughs> my house is all locked up. So uh, my, you know, my belongings are all in storage. So that's it. I might as well keep walking. And I just kept walking and everybody left the trail. You know, there was very few of us out there. So it was very, very alone. Um, and I walked and I walked and I walked and I walked and eventually I got fitter and thinner and and I learned how to handle, well, not handle rattlesnakes, but I learned how to avoid them. And and I, I just coped with snow and drought and water shortages and, and uh, yeah, and the whole thing, I mean, it was hard. It was really hard, um, but eventually I, I got there. And, and like I say, it was everything I learned in the program about, you know, you take things one day at a time. You take things one situation at a time. You break everything complicated and overwhelming. You break it down into what you can control and what you can't control. And you just deal with what you can control. Um, and if in doubt, pray. If in doubt, hit the pause button. Um And so, yeah, so it was everything I'd learned in AA about how to sort of be more emotionally sober once I'd gone into the wilderness. Of course, there's no meetings in America, so there was, you know, and obviously I'm I'm really remote, so I can't even do online meetings or anything. Um, So I listened to a podcast today, so that kept me really in that mindset of it's just for today and I can just focus on today and what I can achieve today. So AA is what got me from, you know, from Mexico to Canada, really, and that that whole way of thinking, because I didn't find it easy. And so is that the subject of the book is how you applied the AA principles and I guess guidelines, and that's 
what got you across America? Absolutely. Absolutely. The book's called Everything You Ever Taught Me. So it's not a drunk log. I don't go into great big drinking stories because, um, you know, the book would end up being like the Britannica Encyclopedia. But uh, so it's very much the principles of AA. So it, it follows the format of the 12 steps. And, you know, I'm out there and I'm out there with a, with nothing other than podcasts. So, you know, my whole sort of support structure is gone. I'm hungry you know, I'm lonely, I'm tired, and I'm I'm angry because I've got a lot of childhood memories to deal with. So it was all about, like you say, those principles, those those breaking it down and realizing that actually not everything's about me. And, you know, I'm living and le- living and, and, and coping, you know, sort of talking myself down out of situations and not living in fear the whole time because out there there's an awful lot to fear and it was like well right now i'm not being eaten by a bear so it's fine and uh, and that rattlesnake's over there and you're here and that's fine you can stand here for a while um and also you know just trying to get along with other people i didn't have that many there weren't that many other people i interacted around but very quickly you know you'd learn it, having that self-confidence to make your own uh, decisions. I think one of the isms part of being an alcoholic is this need to people please and have everybody like you and go along with what everybody else wants you to do. And and I kept falling into that trap and realizing it was adversely affecting my own hike. And then I was getting resentful and angry and annoyed, you know. And that's where the principles really kicked in was was actually you can only control yourself and you're only responsible for yourself and you've got to make decisions based on what, you know, what your needs are, not necessarily trying to constantly people please with and you know meet other people's needs, um, and so yeah, so it, it was a, a very helped me build up my self confidence and certainly did wonders for my self esteem, um, and yeah, because obviously the other big problem is you're on your own with this with a head like mine that's constantly chattering away and telling you you're no good and you're useless and you're going to fail and you shouldn't be out here and you're doing it wrong and. And all of that, and that that just carried on the whole time. And it was only sort of about two weeks before I finally finished that I finally started to feel like a proper hiker, and I let go of that imposter syndrome. Until then, I was just like, you know, I'm just an idiot out here, and I know nothing. I'm not even doing it right. And, and you know, whereas now it's like, actually, you were doing just fine. <laughs> you know what I mean? But at the time, I was a mess of sort of self-sabotaging thinking for a lot of the time. So that's something, unfortunately, that a lot of us addicts, we really know a little too much about the self-confidence and self-esteem. I find from the people I've spoke to is something that in recovery that we really need to find within ourselves. Um, Uh I I actually, you know, I'll send you a copy of them. I did the 12 steps a little differently than AA, but a lot of them is believing in yourself that through discipline and hard Uh work and finding some courage that you really didn't know was there, that all this is possible. So my yeah. last question is, tell me a little bit about your life nowadays. You're sober, you work, everything as far as relationships, I'm assuming, is going a lot better. I guess just tell me a little bit about it. it it's just so much more simple. Um, the one thing is, like I said, this walk and, and subsequently writing the book and everything else, it, it's given me a lot more confidence. So today, I'm not... I'm just not uncomfortable like I used to be. I can look you in the eye. I can have conversations with with anybody, really, addict, non-addict. And so I'm a lot more chilled out about things. I'm much better about asking for help. I'm 
much better about not trying to you know, trying not to panic about the the future and so on and i think the other big thing was i'd, I'd lived in an aa bubble for the first few years of my recovery and obviously when i went to america it was the first time i really stepped away from my support system you know i had a sponsor i had my support structure was aa you know it, it's a big you know i hang out with other people in recovery it's such a network for me and so when i went to america it was the first time i'd really stepped out of this sort of way of living for a while and that was the big thing that shocked me about the trail was just how many drugs there were on the trail. You know, I met an awful lot of people who took an awful lot of drugs. And uh, and I could see, you know, not, they couldn't necessarily see, but I could see how it was affecting their decision-making. You know, they would have to spend an extra day in town waiting for a drug supply to turn up. And then, you know, you could see that you've only got X amount of days you can walk this trail in, and you could see it was starting to affect how much time they spent on the trail because all too quickly the drugs are taking them off trail or the supply is, is taking too long to deliver and so on and so forth. So it was the first big real test of living amongst, you know, everyday people and not having my own support network to hand. Um, so where things are now is obviously I'm back in my support network. It's been very difficult because we've been in lockdown. So uh, there have been AA meetings and there have been in-person meetings uh, ever since I got back to the UK, but they are few and far between, so I've had to drive a lot further. Um, but there's obviously Zoom and that sort of thing, so that's great. So in terms of peace of mind, I'm much more able to sort of live with a serene mind um, than I've ever been in my life before. And I just feel so much more confident about tackling life and dealing with issues and you know, it's it's not easy. Everything's still settling down. Obviously, there's no work around. Um, I did manage to find work actually, so it was okay. Um, but it was it was sort of fits and starts. But that's fine because I've got a book to promote. So if I'm not working in one place, then I'm I'm marketing in another place. So slowly, slowly, we're all getting back to normal. But it is trying. You know, what is normal? It's all very different. But yeah, it, it's I wouldn't want to. I would do anything never to give up this way of life. You know what I mean? I wouldn't, I just couldn't change it now. Um, it's, it's too rewarding. Yeah, that's absolutely amazing. I think that's a great description that I can completely relate to is life is a little bit more simple now, tackling one thing at a time, not worrying about things that are out of your control. But yeah, that's and great. And then you think, like, also, like, not, I don't hang out with people that create a lot of drama either anymore yeah, i shut drama down I, other people's dramas are no it used to, i used to love drama i used to love the chaos of it all i've no interest now you know if you want a drama that's fine leave me out of it and that's a big change and that is absolutely something that a lot of us addicts need to do because people places and things that you know contributed to our use is something that we absolutely need to stay away from so the last thing before we head off here is, did you want to plug your book, make sure everybody knows the name, where to find it, and all that stuff? I'd love to, Jim. Thank you so much. So the book is Everything You Ever Taught Me by Person Irresponsible, uh, which everybody in America hears is personally responsible, and it's like, no, really, I'm irresponsible. Yeah. And, uh, and it charts, <laughs> it's available on Amazon and Kindle uh, in the UK and the US. And, uh, and it's getting great reviews now. And it charts my journey from Mexico to Canada. Uh, obviously, it refers to the AA program and how it helped me. And it's funny uh, because I try to be as funny as I can. And it's heartbreaking at times because I'm honest these days and I don't, I don't pull my punches. Um, 
and yeah, please buy it uh, because I'd love to do another adventure in the future and, uh, and all funds are gratefully received. Thank you. That is great. So this is the end of our podcast. So if you like what you hear, please go on and rate us on iTunes. We're available on a few different podcast platforms. You can also visit our Facebook group for more information. And also check out some Zoom meetings. We do weekly and weekend Zoom meetings, and I love to meet some new faces. So this is Jim R., and thanks for listening.